from the DuckDuckGo studio. Privacy simplified. This is News Talk 830 WCCO. And streaming live on the Odyssey app. The following program is sponsored by Wealth Enhancement Group. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Wealth Enhancement Group or its guests and do not reflect the opinions of News Talk 830 and Odyssey Inc. Advisory services offered through Wealth Enhancement Advisory Services, LLC. A registered investment advisor. Certain but not all investment advisor representatives at Wealth Enhancement Advisory Services are also registered representatives of and offer securities through LPL Financial Member FINRA, SIPC, Wealth Enhancement Group, and Wealth Enhancement Advisory Services are separate entities from LPL. Wealth Enhancement Group is a registered trademark of Wealth Enhancement Group, LLC. Sound strategies to make sense of your financial life. Answers to everyday questions pertaining to your money. Brought to you by Wealth Enhancement Group. Helping you to plan and invest with confidence and clarity. After all, it's your money. Rashini Rajkumar here. You are listening to your money on WCCO Radio. Radio normally with host Bruce and Peg. Today, Bruce is joined by Chris Harstick, Director of Investments, to discuss this crazy first quarter of 2021. You can text and call us today, 651-989-9226. All week, ask your questions of Peg and Bruce at 888-6ADVICE or email yourmoney at wealthenhancement.com. Now, here is the founder of Wealth Enhancement Group, financial advisor Bruce Helmer, and Chris Harstick. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, Rashimi. Hey, Chris. Hi, Bruce. Good morning. Uh, Rashimi, that's a great lead-in, great introduction. I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about Chris. Uh, if you listen to the show on a regular basis, you've heard Chris on here contributing before. Oftentimes, uh, you know, at the end of a quarter, uh, we'll kind of do an update of what just happened and why. And Chris will put you on the spot today also and what you think is going to happen going forward. So in our investment management team, uh, Chris is kind of the, the, the big dog, the big fish, the big kahuna. He's, uh, he's the guy that I, uh, uh, I give all the credit to when my clients are, are happy with their rate of return. No, actually, when they're happy, Chris, I take the credit. And on the rare occasion, if it ever happens <laughs> where they're unhappy, then I blame you. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the first quarter. Um, I, I don't know if there's a particular order that you want to go through things. Uh, maybe you just want to give an overview first, and then I'll try to hit you with some specific stuff, that uh, questions that I'm getting from clients that I think uh, listeners would probably relate to also. But what's the quick overview uh, where how the first quarter went? Yeah, so obviously um... – you know, I think the story of the first quarter was really a dovetailing of what occurred with the end of the fourth quarter of 2020. And that end of the fourth quarter was really tied to the vaccine approval, right? So once we saw the emergency approval for vaccines, we saw a pretty dramatic shift in terms of leadership within the market. And the reopening stocks or those stocks that maybe were most acutely affected by what was occurring due to the coronavirus response. So so we had to respond to the coronavirus from a healthcare standpoint, and it led to some economic issues. As the vaccine uh, has continued to get uh, deployed further and further, that confidence in the reopening has just continued. And thus, those reopening stocks have done very, very well. So think airlines, uh, in, uh, travel stocks, uh, retail stores, restaurants, et cetera. Those, those have done very well. And a lot of those get categorized in the, the value stock category. So last year we talked a lot about growth stocks and how well some of the growth stocks have performed. And we may have even called out some specific names, uh, in particular, the FANG stocks and then some of the super go-go companies 
that were really work from home companies that were uh, that had that appreciated by hundreds of percent in some cases. And we said, eh, it's probably going to cool off a little bit at some point. And we saw we saw that start to cool off uh, really around the time we saw two major stock splits last August. And then as we sort of settled out, got the vaccine ready, uh, got that deployed, found out the efficacy was pretty good, at least to keep people out of the hospital, right? Those, those value stocks that we'd said, make sure you keep some of that. Make sure you keep some of it. I know it's been tough but make sure you keep some of that. Uh, those stocks have done tremendously well, in addition to small cap stocks and emerging market stocks. So we've been very pleased with portfolio positioning. Uh, but obviously now, as you said, Bruce, it's, it's about what are we going to be looking at on a go-forward basis. So we've benefited from this really low interest rate policy. We've benefited from substantial stimulus, and it wasn't just the U.S. Uh, globally, the large, the large countries of the world poured about 35% of their annual GDP at this problem to stimulate their economy or at least uh, bridge the economy through the, the COVID shutdowns. And thus that money has got into people's pockets and people are starting to uh, return to work. Uh, asset prices are rising. As, as asset prices are rising, people feel wealthier and they're going out and spending. So that's really the story, I think, of the first quarter. But in, in order to understand that, you had to understand a little bit of the back half of 2020 to really understand what occurred in the first quarter. So I'm uh, if I, I'm probably going out of the order that you wanted to go in, but um, so you just mentioned the stimulus, uh, and one of the questions I'm getting a lot, Chris, is how are we going to pay for it? There was three big st- stimulus packages, and th- is that debt going to cripple our economy? And, and how can the stock market keep going up? And how can people think things are so good when we have this enormous debt? So I get that question a lot, and I know what I would say, but I want to hear what you would say. Right, right. Yeah, it's definitely one of the top two or three questions that we get, right? So it's uh, it's uh, it's where are interest rates going, what's going on with inflation, and then what's going on with some uh, hot asset, uh, whether that's uh, been stocks or gold or the cryptocurrencies, right? And those, those are kind of the three most common questions that we get at this point. So the way that we've attacked the, the debt, uh, situation or the way that we analyze the debt situation is, is this was warranted in order to, uh, at least the, the growth of debt was warranted in order to support the economy through this, this situation where we lost about, uh, 20% of our workforce, uh, almost 20% of our workforce was reduced hours or completely unemployed due to the response, right? That's a dramatic change in terms of what occurred. And so we needed to do that. But on the flip side of that, as we come out of it, there's really only two ways to pay for it and two ways to keep the debt in check. And one is uh, inflated away. So asset prices will continue to rise. Uh, as those asset prices continue to rise, the debt relative to the overall asset base, and the asset base of the U.S. is uh, a couple hundred trillion dollars. So we hear these huge, huge numbers when it comes to the debt level, but the debt needs to be relative to what your assets are, right? So if you were if you had a house that was worth, let's say, $200 trillion and you had a mortgage that was a $30 trillion or, let's say, $200,000 uh, value house and a 30000 mortgage, no one would kind of blink at that um, because it could then be – and you had a $30,000 annual income. No one would really blink at that because that $30,000 of debt could really be sustained. And that's one of the ways we put in context what the overall debt of, of the U.S. government is at this stage is – we think in context relative to our asset base and relative to what our income is, which could be 
which we would refer to as GDP at this stage, those are two important metrics to put context around the debt. The other thing that's important about the debt is that we own a substantial amount of our debt. And so because we own a substantial amount of our debt, we have some control in terms of when that, that debt will come due. Um, we have some control in terms of uh, the reality of the interest rate connected to that debt. And so I think we can handle the current debt load. Now, there's been studies around this, uh, and there's been a lot of, I think, misinformation that's come out around this. And I know that's where some consternation comes in. And I know a lot of people were raised by people who were grew up in the Great Depression as well. And debt was a four-letter word. So I, I certainly understand the consternation over it. But we think the inf- if there's a little bit of inflation, and we also think uh, there's, a, there's a chance that there's a pretty good chance that taxes go up as well to pay for some of this, not as dramatically as maybe some people are out, out there saying, but ta- uh, slight tax increases and tax increases for the people who have benefited from these huge asset uh, appreciation uh, probably uh, are due because they've been the most they've benefited the most uh, in most cases uh, from this. And I think if we look at those two elements, those are probably the two ways that we get out of this and kind of return to normal. But it's not going to be overnight. It's going to take a little bit of time to get through this. I love the way you explain that, and, and I try to do that with clients also, but you do it better than I did. Chris, I think the people, I think the reason people are so concerned about debt is largely media and then, you know, and then politics, because whatever political party is not in power, they point their finger at the other one and say they're spending too much, and then they gain power and they do the same thing. And we always see this debt in the media reports on it, but I love the way you talked about debt as a ratio to GDP or asset base, because that's really the critical number. And the other point I wanted to make is, and again, kind of getting uh, people that are impacted by politics, which we cannot be, we must be political neutral to do our job. But I think the the people that are very pessimistic right now um, look at this, the last stimulus and say it was bad or it's going to ruin us or it's terrible. But I think it's important to note that both political parties supported stimulus. The reason the last package got no Republican votes was not because Republicans didn't believe in helping people that needed help because they were suffering through no fault of their own because of COVID. They just thought it was too much and there was money going to places that were, you know, Democratic interests or liberal interests. So they didn't vote for the package as it was passed. But that does not mean they were against the stimulus. I think almost all economists in both political parties know we needed to do this stimulus for the economy. Yeah, I think that's right. You, you know, if you look at unemployment, uh, a lot of the unemployment currently is still tied to uh, businesses that can't open or haven't been able to open at uh, full staffing, so full capacity. So think uh, think entertainment, right? So most most sports franchises are still having some restrictions. A lot of restaurants are having restrictions, or uh, some of those are finally relaxed over the last couple of weeks. We are injecting about three million people a day with the vaccine, and uh, that's a heroic, uh, I think, number. You know, almost one percent of our population daily is able to get injected with the vaccine, and so for a, a vaccine of some sort. So. That element, I think, has also been a, a, a really undersold element of, of gaining this confidence that's occurred in, in the market. And from our, our standpoint, uh, you know, the, the politicization of economics has always given us a lot of consternation. 
Um, that said, uh, we always see things kind of landing somewhere in the middle, and those tend to be the best legislation is when there's some compromise around things. And I think you will see some compromise around things uh, as we go forward, at least uh, in, a, in enough of a form that hopefully there's some sustainability. Some people that are in business can plan around those changes. People that are in our world, in the investment world, can plan around those changes. And I know our tax team is doing a great job of getting out there, telling people that you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be prepared for changes in a state tax law uh, or A, B, and C in order to be uh, uh, prepared for changes in terms of capital gains tax law, et cetera. And so from our standpoint, uh, the political aspect does make things uh, interesting, but we have the ability to plan for it. Very few changes are retroactive, right? They are from that point going forward or they start uh, at the next calendar year. And so luckily we have the ability to plan for those types of things. But it does, it does, it is interesting how, how that debt football kind of passed back and forth uh, based <laughs> right? on who's in control. Right. Uh, you mentioned interest rates. We, we must talk about interest rates. I know some people are already lining up on the text lines. But so last week on the show, Chris, I don't know if you got a chance to listen or not. It doesn't matter. I, I know you're super busy. But Peg and I had a question about whether or not we thought interest rates would increase. And we both said, yeah, we think they'll increase a little, maybe not immediately, but in the not too distant future. And it's a guess. Nobody knows for sure. And then a week ago, Sunday night, I watched uh, Fed Chairman Powell on 60 Minutes, and I got the distinct impression that there's no plans to increase interest rates at all anytime soon. And that his overall outlook on the economy was even more optimistic than I thought. I don't know if you saw the 60 Minutes. I know you do that research all the time. But interest rates, you know, again, the old joke, I know exactly what they're going to do. They're going to go up or they're going to go down or they're going to stay the same. We just don't know when. What are your thoughts on interest rates? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think uh, interest rates are also a global element, too. So while uh, Fed Chairman Powell uh, is definitely at the forefront of where interest rates are going, we still have a, a global phenomenon that we're dealing with with COVID and a global phenomenon with uh, the dip from an economic standpoint, right? And so if we look at places outside of the U.S., uh, China was a little bit ahead of us because they dealt with the virus uh, a, a probably two, three, four months ahead of us, right? And and so they were a, a little bit more aggressive, too, in their lockdowns, and so they're a little bit ahead of us in, economically. And the reason I bring them up is because behind that, I would say that Europe and some other countries, as we're unfortunately seeing in some other countries, they're dealing still dealing with their peak in the virus. I think our peak seems to have been uh, really in January of this year uh, where we kind of saw peak cases, peak uh uh, mortality. And, and so as we go forward uh, and look at other places in the world, you're seeing places uh, like Europe that are behind us and likely going to have uh, lower interest rates. We still have about $17 trillion of debt outstanding uh, in the world that has a negative yield to it. So this is places like Germany, uh, places in, in Europe. Japan was basically uh, flat for a long, long time. They have a very modest uh, positive interest rate at this point. And so it's not just about the U.S. when you think about interest rates, but what we do think about interest rates on a go-forward basis, as you said, Fed Chairman Powell is saying, I will tolerate inflation. If you think about where we were uh, on a go-forward, or if we if we go back to pre-COVID, 
we were at the situation where we had the uh, most employed people as a percentage of employable people in the U.S. economy in January and February of 2020. It was the highest level in 50 years. That was a very strong economy from an employment standpoint, but we still weren't at that 2% inflation target that the Fed was, has been targeting and said they've been targeting since the 0809 crash. And so if we think about inflation on a go-forward basis, uh, their ability to tolerate inflation, we still aren't near full employment at this stage, and they're going to continue to keep the, their foot on the accelerator. And much has been said about it, no interest rates until late 2022, or no interest rate hikes until late 2022 or early 2023. The market's pricing it in a little bit sooner than that. Um, and so we're still trying to navigate that, but we don't see any, uh, an interest rate hike in the short, uh, in the short term. So say next three to six months, maybe after that point, there will be some reassessment. But really what we're looking at right now is, uh, very strong comparisons because last year's data around this time was very, very weak, right? And so that's led to people, I think, being more concerned about where interest rates are going than maybe they have been. The other thing that we've also seen, I think, is people are saying, you know, I'm not sure I want to just be sitting in bonds and earning uh, a couple of percent from my bonds. I see all these people doing really well in stocks. I see all these people doing really well in cryptocurrencies or private equity um, or IPOs through what's called a SPAC, so a special purpose acquisition company, um, or gold or what have you, right? And so they're saying, well, you know, instead of being a, a someone who's going to have 50% of my assets in stocks and 50 in bonds like I used to, maybe I'll go to 65, 35, and maybe part of that increase is going to come in some other form. And, and so we saw a little bit of a, a, a sell-off in bonds in the first quarter. I think a lot of that is over because bonds still have a very – uh, very strong dual purpose in portfolios. One, they are the most stable asset um, historically within portfolios. And two, that sta- stable asset is going to be very important when we have our next correction. We have a correction on average every other year, correction being defined as a 10% sell-off in stocks. And that is, again, likely to happen. And in order to buy stocks when they go on sale, you have to have some form of other assets to do that, right? Whether it's, like I said, gold uh, or precious metals or uh, uh, cryptocurrencies or private equity that's coming due or bonds and, and cash. And and so that will still have a very uh, prominent place in portfolios. But I do see, see a lot of uh, investors kind of saying, I'm not so sure I want to own bonds at that level. And, and so they're either reconfiguring that portfolio or just blending in a little bit of some other things in portfolios. And thus, I think that's what we saw occur uh, a lot in the first quarter when we had a little bit of a bond sell-off. Um, and we also saw a lot of people go buy stocks. So the inflows in the stocks over the five-month period ending March 31st was about $600 billion. That was more than had gone into stocks than the previous 12 years combined. So it was the very strong inflow into stocks as people get confidence around the vaccine and took that a lot of stimulus money they got a lot of that confidence they got uh that their jobs were going to be very safe that covid was eventually going to be under control that money poured into stocks and and some of it was some people selling bonds and so i think a lot of that volatility and interest rates is probably behind us but there there certainly could be a, a little bit as we move forward through a lot of this new data 
Um, and a lot of, a lot, a lot of what we're going to see from a stimulus, uh, 3.0, 4.0 and, and potential adjustments to taxes on a go forward basis. Hey, Chris and Rashini, we got a minute or two before a break. Rashini, can we try to sneak in a text? We sure can, Bruce. This listener says I'm 55, plan to retire at 62. 100% of my 403B is in Vanguard 2030 target date fund. The bond portion, about a third and growing, makes me nervous. What should I do? Hey, Chris, you got about a minute to address this. Sure. So uh, I, I think that's just what we were speaking to, right, in that, in that last segment is the bonds serve a very uh, important purpose in your portfolio. They are there for stability. They will generate a little income, but they will allow you to rebalance uh, your portfolio if we go through a downturn and, again, buy stocks when they're on sale. So that purpose, I think, is going to continue to be there. You know, we've had the question of, should I sell my bonds and just pay off my mortgage? And if you, it, I, what I always tell that person is, well, if you do that, then we're going to probably want to readjust your portfolio because you're not going to be comfortable with having a lot more stock in your portfolio because you just sold all your bonds to pay off your mortgage. And thus, the volatility of the stock market, which we all know can, can go haywire um, based on a variety of factors, that element of, of stock being down 20, 30, 40% due to a variety of things always makes people uncomfortable, and then they will sell at the worst time. Uh, instead of buying with that, with that stability of bonds, they're selling. And so because even if there's a small difference in interest rate that you're earning from your bonds versus what you're paying for your mortgage, we encourage people not to sell, liquidate, to pay off their mortgage completely, unless it's a very small de minimis amount in their last couple of years of that mortgage. And I'd say the same thing to you in this in, the, in using this 2030 uh, target date fund. Okay, we're right. for a break, I think. Yes, we are. And you can call and text Bruce and Chris today, 651-989-9226. Again, those calls and texts, we are right here for you with that free advice. We will take those when your money returns. Rashini Rajkumar back with you on Your Money on this Sunday morning, along with your host, Bruce Helmer, and our special guest today, Chris Harstick, Director of Investments at Wealth Enhancement Group. We're covering a lot of ground after a very interesting first quarter of 2021. Lots of questions, gentlemen, so let's get right to them. This listener says NBC had a report yesterday that companies can't find applicants. One reason is the two generous unemployment benefits lasting till September. Jeff in Waconia wants your take on that. Chris, have you, have you heard that question before? Because I have also. Yeah, we have heard that question. Um, you know, I, I think from our standpoint, the 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 benefits right have have served a strong purpose and that strong purpose was people were forced into a situation as bruce said earlier through no fault fault of their own uh just not being able to work the the jobs they used to many of those people were two or three jobs uh that were that were part-time or or full-time and then some part-time jobs in the service industry and with the u.s economy being such a service heavy oriented uh, economy at this stage, it's roughly about 70% of our economy is estimated to be connected to services. It's not surprising that we had to be really generous to support many of those people um, and that we had to be aggressive too. That was one of the lessons we learned in 2008, 2009 was be aggressive, get the money into the hands of the individuals versus uh, have it, having it funneling down from 
uh, larger entities, be it some institution or some corporation, and to get that money out quickly, fast, and to those most acutely affected. Was it perfect? No. Um, did it serve a very good purpose to make sure that the economy did not morph into a Great Depression 2.0? I, I think the evidence is there that, that that's true. Now, the, the repercussions, I think, is what Jeff was referring to in terms of, uh, you know, what, how are we going to work our way through this? I think, um, you know, one of those is the, the some of these benefits will sunset. Uh, most of the country, unfortunately, is in a position where they aren't great savers. There's been a lot of statistics around this, right, where 40, 45% of the country is estimated uh, that they wouldn't be able to handle, handle an emergency four, four or $500 expense, unfortunately. And so as the, some of the benefits go away, as the vaccines are deployed and people feel more comfortable from a health standpoint as well, I think you'll see that sunset quickly. Uh, people return to those jobs uh, quickly. And I think it's actually going to occur uh, almost as much in concert with the comfort around their health um, element and their their ability to take care of their children in some cases or their uh, parents in other cases in a way where they feel like they're still safe uh, as much as it has to do with the unemployment benefits itself. And so uh, I, I think this changes quickly. I think it changes here in 2021. And, and I think you'll see a lot of those jobs continue to grow. We saw a great jobs number at the end of March, and I think you'll continue to see pretty strong job job numbers uh, on a monthly basis going forward. I'm sorry, Rasheed, I wanted to follow up on Jeff's uh, question. Um, Chris, anytime you take something that's this economically comprehensive and, and complicated, there's always going to be things that, that – don't work well or unintended consequences, but you still have to look at it macroeconomically and globally. So Jeff's question is fair, and it's a good one, but that seems like a relatively small price compared to to the benefits. That's kind of what I think I heard you say. And then my follow-up, and it's not exactly what uh, Jeff was asking, but we also promised listeners, so far our discussion has been where we've been. We promised we would talk about where we think we're going but again, in terms of where we've been, Wealth Enhancement Group has been pretty vocal since the pandemic first broke that you should expect volatility. And then last year, I think, what was it, second week of February to third week of March, we saw a huge retraction in the market of some 30-some percent. Since then, the market's been, been really good. And a lot of people are going, how can that be? We had we have racial and social unrest. We had a president, a contentious presidential election. We still have COVID hanging over our head. How can the markets be so good? There's got to be another retraction coming. So what's what's your crystal ball tell you? <laughs> um, well, you know, as we always talk about, Bruce, the, the market is forward looking, right? So the market is typically uh, several months uh, in front of where the actual economy is. So Unemployment is a lagging indicator, so the unemployment numbers are a lagging indicator. Some other economic numbers are more of a leading economic indicator. So one thing that we follow is the purchasing manager's index. That purchasing manager's index is essentially uh, what the buyers or what the people who are uh, in control of the of the supply that goes into the product that they make at a manufacturer, what their confidence level is, what they are seeing in their order book for uh, producing their typical goods for their end customers, right? And so that's a number that that's uh, turned positive relative to its historical average. 
uh, over the course of the last three to six months, really broadly throughout the world, not just in the U.S. And I, and I think if we look at some of the leading economic indicators, they've been positive uh, for a few months now, uh, even dating back to the to the back half of 2020. And so the, the market has has run pretty strongly over the last year, especially if you're looking at year over year uh, data. So if you're looking at uh, any performance relative to this point in time last year, or if you're looking at your first quarter report, so March 31st, relative to March 31st of last year, uh, that's almost exactly the bottom in the market. So March 23rd of 2020 was what we call the COVID bottom in the market. Uh, as you said, the market sold off hard from late February to, to that March period. And there were days where the market would open up 5% and be down 10% by the end of the day, or vice versa. It was extraordinarily volatile. That volatility actually set a record based on one metric. So there's this thing called the VIX index. That that VIX index indicated a record. We saw billionaires uh, going on TV every day saying, this is a major issue. Uh, I don't know how we ever get out of it. And, you know, I think we were on the radio back in March together, and I, and, and the Fed came out with their bazooka uh, hours after we were on the radio, it seemed like, each Sunday. And then I, I think we both said, you know, we have to get a response out of Washington. That's the lesson we learned in 0809. We got that response, and we're still getting some of that response. And so I think the market at this point has priced in a lot of optimism related to vaccine deployment, a lot of optimism uh, relative to this infrastructure package that's that's going to be working its way through D.C. and what that means from an economic boost standpoint. So, as you said, people have politicized the debt. Well, infrastructure has been a, a something that people have agreed needs to be done for multiple years, right? So we've all seen the deficiency reports on roads and bridges and other infrastructure, Internet access for uh, various uh uh, children or s- rural communities, et cetera. And so that, I think, is also somewhat priced into the market. And so as we go forward, I do expect more volatility in the market uh, as people are digesting uh, these easy comparisons and start to look ahead towards the back half of the year when the comparisons aren't quite as easy. If you remember, the second quarter of 2020, we had the worst quarter for GDP since the Great Depression uh, or actually on record because they weren't keeping uh, the exact data back then. And we were down 33% from a GDP standpoint. Our GDP typically uh, grows at about 2 3 4% a year. And so 33% was a gigantic change. And then we had a 33% growth coming out of that, uh, which was another gigantic change in the third quarter of 2020. And now we're starting to stabilize. But we're, we're going to see, I think, still strong after effects of all of the stimulus, as I said, 35-ish percent of global economies got put into the economy from a stimulus standpoint. And so sorting through this data is maybe as hard as it's ever been. Uh, but that's why we encourage diversified portfolios. That's why we encourage you not to just bet on growth stocks or value stocks or U.S. stocks or uh, bonds, right? And so uh, I think that's the mindset we all need to take. Uh, don't be as greedy uh, at this stage is maybe you, you should have been a year ago. And, and I remember we were on the air and said, uh, now's a great time to buy stocks, especially if you're thinking about this three or four or five years from now. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily think it was going to uh, come to fruition over the course of the next year as quickly as it did. 
but it was a good opportunity to buy high quality businesses when they were on sale. And, and so uh, in summary, expect more volatility, but don't be scared of it. I still think there's, you're going to get your long-term historical returns if you're invested with the long-term focus. All right, gentlemen, we have a lot of text, so let's try to get to those. I want to remind people you can call and text us, 651-989-9226. This listener says, hi, Bruce. There's a big rush to housing purchases right now, like a rush to any asset purchase. Are we setting up for quake sand, or is it being built on sound foundation? So, Chris, the real estate market for sellers right now is just hotter than a pistol. It's a great question. Uh, How does investment management look at this? Yeah, so from our standpoint, we, we were underbuilding in the in the home uh, development area for a number of years. So uh, the home the home builders kind of ran off over the cliff back in 06, 07, right? And after that point, uh, housing obviously took a, a fair amount of time to sort through that mess and stabilize uh, a five or six year period before it actually reached the bottom. I think it actually reached the the technical bottom in 2013. And then we gradually were coming out of that. And now as, as we've, uh, as we've come out of this period and got all of this stimulus, uh, all of these very low interest rates, right? So, um, I, I was on, I think, uh, back in November and talked about one of my friends refinancing their, their, uh, their mortgage at a 2.625% rate, uh, for 30 years, uh, on a, on a stable asset, a relatively stable asset. So we saw that, uh, that, mechanism really juice uh, the economy as well and the equity and home values uh, has, has also helped in this wealth effect that we talked about earlier so as we as we look at the home building we, we still have been uh, slightly underdeveloped from a home building standpoint and we saw a lot of people during covid uh, return to uh, spending time with their family unit so you know multiple generations ago it wasn't uncommon to have two or three uh, generations in a household. Uh, we kind of changed that over uh, the, the much of the the, 90, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, right? And uh, people became much more independently minded. Now we're having a return to uh, kind of our normal way, at least as Americans, how we lived. And I think uh, I, I think from our standpoint, the prices themselves may not continue at this pace, but they should remain relatively stable as long as interest rates remain relatively stable, which, again, we think interest rates will remain relatively stable based on our last conversation. So I wouldn't fear it. Uh, if you plan to live someplace for 10, 15, 20 years, I wouldn't hesitate to make that purchase. Uh, but I also wouldn't speculate uh, and go out and buy a bunch of homes uh, in anticipation that they're going to be up another uh, 10, 15, 20% 12 months from now. I think that would be a foolish uh, move at this stage. All right. This listener says, I'm curious if Minnesota is going to forgive the unemployment the Senate passed in March. The House did not have any movement. Should I file my taxes? Chris, do you know anything about that? Uh, unfortunately, I have not been following it specific to Minnesota. Um yeah, I, I don't think I don't think a decision has been made yet. As soon as we hear something, we'll talk about it on this show. All right. This person says for this year, twenty twenty one, is the RMD back as required? It is. So for listeners that don't know, required minimum distribution on traditional IRAs, traditional four hundred one Ks, qualified plans where you got a deduction for your contribution. 
uh, when you are 72 years old, the IRS mandates that you begin to take withdrawals from those accounts. Last year, you got a reprieve because of COVID. This year, not. This year, we uh, you have to take your RMD again, just like you always did before last year. And uh, um, I don't envision that changing at this point. All right. This listener says, I have 160000 in Roth. Pay off my 160000 mortgage, question mark. It will leave me with $1.5 million in taxable 401k retiring within the year. Ooh. Okay, um, Chris, before I let you go first, I want to weave something else in here. So this is another question about paying off the mortgage or real estate. A couple minutes ago, we had a question about uh, um, single-family housing. I want I, I, I want you to give your two cents on this specific question, but then I wanted to ask a follow-up. Real estate beyond single-family homes, one of the questions I'm getting a lot from my clients is, all this empty office building space, We've learned now because of COVID that people can actually work from home. What is that going to do to, to, to office real estate, and what impact might that have overall on the economy? Um, so add that answer into the answer to the uh, to the texter, please. Okay, sure, sure. Uh, so so as we said, I, I don't think that's a great idea in most cases to pay off the home, and to and I think maybe most important to this question is not just the difference in return that you get from the portfolios, uh, which is one of the common ways that people look at it. So the return of the portfolio potential, potentially on a go-forward basis versus your current interest rate on that $160,000 mortgage. I think the most important part of this question is you're going to take the money out of your Roth IRA. Uh, the Roth IRA is one of the greatest things that's, I think, ever been uh, brought forth for individual savers. So being able to earn uh, money within your Roth IRA without tax consequences on a go-forward basis, and then to potentially pass it on to heirs uh, in a way that would be, again, tax-free uh, if, if you are so happen to be lucky enough to have a large estate. With this relatively large 401k you have, and if you are a resident of a state that taxes a state differently than what estates are taxed at the federal level, uh, I think giving up that Roth IRA would be a huge mistake. Uh, again, I don't know all your personal circumstances, but I do think uh, the certainty that you would gain uh, relative to your overall asset level, I, I just don't see that trade-off working. Uh, I- I'll defer to Bruce uh, if he has anything else specific to that, and then yeah, I'm happy to. I just ahead, want to add, you know, I, for retirement income planning, we want you to have options of where you take your income from. If the only option you have is taking it out of a tax-deferred plan that might, you know, cause bracket creep or, or be pay taxes at a high rate, you've, you've just painted yourself into a corner. But if you've got a Roth that your income or part of your income can come from, we have much more control over your overall tax situation. So for all the reasons Chris said, plus that, I agree. I, I would not take a Roth to pay off my mortgage. Now, if you had 160000 not in a Roth, cash in the bank, earning almost zero, and you wanted to use that, now that's a different conversation. That's right. All right. He, right. Here's kind of a loaded question for you both. What are the benefits of a, an IUL over a Roth? IUL? I don't know what that stands for, Bruce. You know what an IUL is? Uh, no, unfortunately, our industry has 
so many. Yeah, maybe the maybe the texture can clarify that. Let's go on to a different question. What are the options regarding gains on a home sale? Is there anything to do to avoid huge taxation of a long term gain since I bought my home? So I'll go. I'll take this one, Chris. So uh, with regard to the home that you live in, as long as you lived in that home two of the last five years, you can sell that home essentially without having to pay taxes on the gain up to, I think it's a half a million dollars for a married couple. So if you bought a home for 500000 and you sold it for a million, that's not a taxable situation. And it doesn't matter what you do with the, with the proceeds from that sale. Some people think, well, I have to go buy another house. You don't. You can do anything you want with that money. So the taxes only kick in on gains over a half a million dollars, as long as that was homesteaded, a place you lived in two of the last five years. Those same rules don't apply to vacation homes and, and, and whatnot. You have to have established residency and lived there two of the previous five years. And Chris, really quickly, I never did give you a chance to uh, uh, the commercial real estate question. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and I think one where uh, the clarity is is certainly more murky than, than many of the things we look at at this stage. Uh, however, we are seeing some entities uh, rolling out their return-to-work policies, and, and many of them are, are kind of advertising that they're going to probably have a small contingent of, of, of employees who actually never come back to the office uh, because their role doesn't require maybe being in a lot of these the typical meetings uh, or having interaction with clients or customers of some sort, right? And and so based on the type of business, that number, I think, uh, oscillates quite a bit. Uh, however, we are seeing a lot of companies uh, tele- or telegraphing a policy of having a, uh, a quasi-return to, to work or a hybrid uh, return to work, or maybe you're in the office two, three, four days a week and working from home two, three two or three days a week, right? And and that seems to be the consensus. However, as part of that, I think we're seeing a lot of businesses going to a potential workstation sharing program. So instead of coming into your specified location every day, uh, there, there's probably going to be someone who has a similar job who will share your office or workstation if you are one of those people getting the advantage or wanting to have the advantage of working from home uh, on a more regular basis then you're probably going to have to share some of your workspace. And that sharing a workspace is maybe the, the hardest thing to quantify on a go-forward basis, what it means for 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 uh, works for the commercial real estate space. That said, uh, I think we're seeing a, a pretty strong push uh, in other areas to actually grow their footprint. And so this overall balance, there's a lot to shake out. Uh, actually putting forth a complete forecast I think is difficult. But there's also a lot of study that's been done in terms of the value of face-to-face interaction. So you're, there was an FBI study done that said you have a 34% or 34 times uh, the likelihood of getting the answer you need or want by meeting someone in person versus doing a phone call or a Zoom call. And I think as someone starts to go out and meet customers and make those sales because they're the person in front, you get their attention. We all know it's difficult to keep your attention during these All right, Chris, I'm sorry I have to jump in. We are right up against the clock. Another great episode of uh, Your Money. We'll be back next Sunday. And during the week, you can always email Peg and Bruce, yourmoney at wealthenhancement.com.
The previous program was sponsored by Wealth Enhancement Group. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Wealth Enhancement Group or its guests and do not reflect the opinions of News Talk 830 and Odyssey, Inc.